This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, the state of Seattle. If you haven't been into the city since the pandemic, you may be wondering about the view from the ground, and you may have questions about the status of the daily police protests. Here to address all this is Rich Smith, writer for Seattle Independent News Source, The Stranger. Then, with the recent reports of Donald Trump denigrating our war dead, we are joined by Afghanistan war veteran and indivisible member Chris Franco for a response. That's all ahead, so stay with us. For those of us who have not been to Seattle since the pandemic began, we may be watching the city from afar and seeing it covered on the media, and we're wondering if there's a disconnect between what we are seeing and the reality of what's on the ground. And we also may find ourselves wondering about the status of the ongoing protests there. So I got our friend Rich Smith to join us. Rich, of course, writes for The Stranger and is one of the best journalists in the state, in my opinion. Rich, my friend, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for saying that. I'm better now. Well, it's it, it's true. And, you know, just before we were beginning, we were talking about the air quality and how uh, we're all going to have to either get uh, filtration systems, I think, or we're going to have to develop some sort of smoke breathing gills, one or the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's what we're going to need in order to adapt to our um, uh, summer fires. And I guess who couldn't use some more um, resistance to summer flames, you know? Yeah, and really, honestly, uh, in terms of 2020, who couldn't use a little bit more piling on? Am I right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. First, there was the pandemic uh, in the context of, you know, having an inept uh, leader uh, in the White House. Uh, and then, of course, there's, you know, uh, brutal uh, police crackdowns of, uh, of uh, uprisings. Uh, and then we might as well throw uh, a season of uh, super intense, fast moving wildfires uh, uh, happening all over the West, uh, burning hillsides and houses and, uh, and people. Why not? I would say the trifecta, but I think we're five or six uh, at this point. Um, so, look, for those of us who have not been since the pandemic, I'd love for you to just kind of give us a sense of what the city is like right now. What, what is happening with local businesses? What, what's it like socially? Can you give us a sense? Yeah. Uh, I mean, when I walk around, uh, I live in Capitol Hill, which is the sort of epicenter of uh, a lot of uh, the protest activity. We, we can kind of talk about where actually these protests happen, but it is it's where they have been happening a lot, you know, more uh, in Seattle. Uh, but people are, you know, out dining at restaurants, uh, they're packing patios, they're sipping margaritas on the weekends, they're, you know, uh, hanging out in many parks uh, <laughs> on blankets, uh, they're walking around throwing stuff away in the garbage. It, they're, 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 it looks like any other sort of city uh that is dealing with a pandemic. There's more people wearing masks here maybe than uh, elsewhere. Uh, but even that is a little bit <laughs> untrue at times, depending where you are in the city. So um, it, it looks pretty regular. What are your thoughts on how Seattle is being portrayed in the media uh, versus the reality of what's on the ground? Well, if you turn on Fox News, you'll see uh, a city that is apparently overrun by uh, Antifa super soldiers who are dedicated to uh, destroying uh, every building they see and, you know, hurting public servants and cops and, and, and stuff like that. And, you know, they focus on the broken glass and the boarded up windows. And there has been broken glass. There has been boarded up windows. Some businesses, you know, a lot of businesses downtown have boarded up their windows. Um, some businesses in Capitol Hill have boarded up their windows. But those boards were up there because the pandemic closed the businesses down. <laughs> and if the business is not open, they've got their you know, windows boarded. Some businesses do have boards up because they have been targeted by some of the protesters. Um, but again, that's a kind of a, a specific few number of businesses. Uh, every kind of instance of property damage you see from these protesters has at least some justification on their end, whether or not you agree with um, the ethics of, uh, of, of, of breaking people's windows. But, you know, it's there's a couple of Starbucks in Capitol Hill uh, and uh, a Starbucks downtown. There's the police precincts themselves. There's. Uh, a couple of phone companies got hit. Not sure why that happened. Uh, but the then there's the the key bank. There's been a couple key banks 
branches on Capitol Hill that have had their windows broken. Uh, Uncle Ike's, it's a pot shop. There's some political issues there about gentrification. And then the, the latest is uh, the Canterbury. It's, a, it's another bar on Capitol Hill where um, the, the owner uh, said something dumb on Facebook right after the riots, said that, uh, uh, that the protesters should be shot or he was fine with the protesters being shot or looters being shot, rather. Um, and, uh, and so they've uh, protested his, his building before. But So it's these kind of targeted instances, each of which have their own justification in the view of the protesters, mostly located in one neighborhood, Capitol Hill. If you, go, if you walk 20 minutes in either direction, you're, you're going to see single-family homes and blue skies. You know, it's, it, and even in Capitol Hill, uh, it's mostly in the park, in Cal Anderson Park, um, where there's some um, uh, activity, protesters. I would add also Seattle Police Officers Guild's headquarters, which is in Soto. Uh, there's been a couple marches there. And so the protests have extended that far, at least in terms of, uh, of one protest group is, uh, is concerned, this one protest group, which often in, in black bloc. Well, yeah. So let's let's talk about that, because I mean, you're, you're giving us a, a kind of a solid picture of some of the fallout from the po- the protests. I'm wondering mm-hmm. how frequently the protests are happening. You mentioned a lot are happening in Cal Anderson. Uh, and who are some of the groups involved? There are sort of four groups. One of the groups will object to using the word group, but it, it's very difficult to talk about collectives without using words like groups and organizations, but for the sake of conversation, let's just say groups. Uh, There's uh, a protest for every hour of the day in Seattle. Uh, There's the morning marchers, there's the everyday direct, or the everyday marchers, and then there's the every night direct demonstrators, and then there's the black indigenous uh, coalition. Um, Those are sort of the four kind of daily protest groups, asterisks over the word groups. Um, The morning marchers tend to uh, go to uh, council members' uh, homes and try to have dialogue with uh, certain politicians about their demands. Um, The everyday uh, marchers, they also just, they they, they sort of march to the police precincts, the West Precinct down in um, South Lake Union or downtown, whatever you want to call it. Um, Some occasionally to the East uh, Precinct and uh, and to the Washington State Patrol office and and, and protest the police there uh, in general. Uh, And uh, every night direct demonstrators, they uh, have created a space where people can kind of show up in black block and uh, go around and, and protest largely in Capitol Hill. They too beef with the cops. Uh, they you know they um, go to the East Precinct and uh, throw bags of trash. There's been a, a couple of videos uh, of w- one protester throwing um, a flaming object at the at the precinct. And similarly, there's another video of. Uh, uh, some person uh, wearing black uh, throwing a flaming object at the uh, Spog headquarters. And the police have, you know, because of these uh, constant uh, marches and uh, because of some fires that have that happened uh, outside of the East Precinct in Capitol Hill, have created these giant like fortresses, like Minas Tirith or like, you know, like Elm's Deep fortresses around the precincts. The, the West Precinct has several uh, or has you know, a, a wall of uh, heavy cement blocks and then the east precinct also has a wall of heavy cement blocks topped with fencing so the police reaction to these protests has been to kind of barricade themselves in castles and then during the protests uh, try to arrest as many people as as they allegedly see committing crimes you know? So these four groups that you're talking about, the morning marchers, the everyday uh, groups, the uh, the every night groups, and the black indigenous coalition, do you have a sense of their demands? And is there is there a profound delta between all four groups in terms of what they want? I know. Yeah, the demands are clear and they have been the same since um, since June or, you know, since early June when they were first issued. Uh, they. There's there's chanting that I'm preventing myself from doing uh, now because I don't want to sing uh, on, on on a podcast. But are, are you sure? One... <laughs> <laughs> Defund SPD? How much? Uh, yeah. Uh, 
the first one is to defund SPD by 50% at least. The second one is to invest the defunded money into black communities. The third one is free all protesters or amnesty for protesters uh, who have been uh, arrested and put in jail. The fourth one is uh, no new youth jail, which is uh, the family youth incarceration center that they're building in the central district. And the fifth one is for Jenny Durkin to resign. Those five demands are like apply to morning march and everyday march, uh, definitely. Uh, I assume that some people who march in the every night direct demonstrations uh, also want those demands, but their, their views are tend to be farther to the left. Uh, they're there for total abolition. No cops, no prisons, total abolition. So they want to see police abolition. They want to see prison abolition. Uh, and their protests occasionally will lead to those targeted acts of, uh, of property destruction. They'll they'll knock, they'll you know, bust windows outside of a Starbucks because of Starbucks contributing $10,000 to the Seattle Police Foundation once and and those sorts of things so that's kind of the breakdown and the black, black indigenous coalition uh they march every friday uh, i think i might be wrong here but to the west precinct or, or to the east precinct starting on broadway and pine which was where one protest uh ended one day and so they use that as a kind of central um a point uh, of, of of departure i'll just ask you where do you see all this going ultimately? You wrote recently that you predict that the protests are going to get worse before they get better. How do you see all this playing out long term? Some protesters have told me that, yeah. Um, eh, long term, I think the protests will continue happening every day so long as it's nice out. I think that even if it gets not so nice out, there will always be a small group of dedicated um, protesters in the streets um, until the politicians meet their demands to whatever degree. Um, a deep concern that I have is, um, and what I think the protesters mean when they say it's going to get worse before it gets better, is that as we've seen in Portland, there will be a um, an increasing right-wing presence. Uh, you might see some of these Trump caravans coming in uh, from other places, uh, maybe you know more rural parts of the state, uh, coming in to shoot uh, a protester or shoot up a protest group. And there's good reason to believe that that might happen. Well, I mean, we've seen some of this already to date, right? There, there have been, uh, there's been several instances uh, that, but the political motivations are unclear. There has been during the era, uh, during the time of Chop, uh, there Proud Boys and other right wing groups would come in, look around, beat somebody up, or try to beat somebody up, and then leave. Or they would come in, look around, and feel confused because they thought that you know the six block radius that uh, was the chop zone was somehow all of Seattle. They thought that, you know, um, chop had uh, the people who were in chop were trying to establish an autonomous zone that was separate from the United States. And so that gave them license to come in and take back that territory on behalf of the United States. When they got there and most of the people were just, you know, handing out free granola bars and trying to talk to them about racial justice, they got confused and left. You know, that, 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 was the, that was the case then, you know, during the height of, of CHOP. But even then there were some, uh, yeah, right-wingers who, who, who came in. There have been deaths uh, and, and, and shootings. Uh, in the early protests in June, a, a man uh, drove a car uh, into the protesters and uh, fired a shot at one of them who, had, uh, who tried to stop the car. And uh, that person has been charged with assault. There was various vehicular uh, attacks or reports of vehicular attacks on the borders of CHOP. There have been um, more than three uh, vehicle attacks uh, on uh, vehicle assaults on protesters over the course of several months as they've been uh, marching, each of which uh, have been reported. Um, and then, of course, there were um, killings uh, at you know, w within CHOP back whenever CHOP uh, was happening. A, a couple young men uh, lost their lives during you know, fights, uh, basically. And, and so, so and so you see this, uh, unfortunately, escalating over time uh, before it ever ultimately comes to any sort of resolution. Yes. Either the um, uh, politicians do uh, what the protesters want or the protesters keep happening. And the longer that the protests keep happening, the more likely it is that um, I think a right wing uh, attack will happen. 
That is um, chilling. And yeah, and it, given what we've seen in other cities, uh, it unfortunately does seem likely. I want to ask you about the Labor Day protest because you covered that as a journalist. I would love for you to describe the scene as it unfolded. And I especially would like you to tell people about the encounter that you had with police. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, you know, got there. Uh, protest started about 530 or so uh, at the International District Light Rail Station. Um, you know, it's a bunch of people wearing black. Uh, there was a little tent there. People were passing out, um, you know, earplugs and uh, uh, masks and uh, bottles of water, and little stickers that were critical of certain news agencies around town, etc. And, of course, critical of the police. And um and then they all gathered, um, and they've got a, a car brigade. So they've got some cars that um, drive ahead of them and behind them to protect them from vehicular attacks, which have been a, a problem. One of the deaths that I uh, neglected to mention earlier was the death of Summer Taylor, who was uh, killed by a driver um, uh, during a protest on I-5. That's really shaken the protesters, and so they tried to, to, to protect themselves from those kinds of attacks with the, the brigade. Uh, anyway, that whole unit uh, started marching down. Down, uh, the avenue and um, they got to um, Spog headquarters a few miles away, chanting ACAB and that sort of stuff. Uh, and then when they got to the headquarters of the police union, you could hear the sound of Big and Rich's uh, smash 2004 hit, uh, Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy, coming from the speaker. And there was kind of a general like, what is this? Where is that song coming from? And then a general understanding that it was coming from the building. And then just as everybody was just kind of like, you know, started to, to line up, um, uh, a big group of police on bicycles uh, turned the corner uh, from behind the building and drove directly into the front line of the protesters uh, and started arresting people. The protesters responded to that with putting up shields and, uh, and their umbrellas. Uh, one protester, I think, uh, I think it was a protester, uh, set off a uh, fire extinguisher, creating a big cloud of, uh, of, of smoke. And then the cops really went after it and started arresting people in mass and throwing glass balls and uh, throwing flashbangs. And, uh, and then a couple units of, of, of rubber bullet cops came out and, and started shooting people. And, uh, and then they kind of gathered all the protesters into a, a group after a, a lot of dispersal activity uh, and then started pushing them uh, up the road uh, with their bikes uh, several miles, um, ultimately up to a park. Um, during that time, I couldn't see what prompted the cops to make the initial arrests in the first place. Uh, I was sort of standing the same way the cops were ended up attacking. So I was looking at the front line of the protesters and I didn't see anybody throwing anything at the building. I looked at um, uh, footage afterwards and it looked like one of the protesters threw half a bag of garbage over the fenced off area. But that protesters was throwing the bag of garbage as the police were hitting the line. So it wasn't didn't seem to be a causal relationship uh, there. Um, as the uh, um, police were pushing the cops up the road, though. Uh, I did see some fire in the street that police later uh, said or claimed was a was a Molotov uh, cocktail that was uh, thrown into the middle of a, of a street. And then police also claimed that they found um, uh, Corona bottles that they say were uh, you know that were that were uh, like three Molotov cocktails in a Corona case that they say uh, was left behind by a, a protester. Uh, they tweeted this stuff out, kind of literally as they were pushing the, the, the protesters out the road. So working on this kind of public relations strategy uh, or information uh, campaign, however you want to, uh, yeah. to, to, to say it, uh, as they were um, uh, throwing flashbangs at the protesters and, and pushing them up, up the road. During that time, uh, I was pushed by a cop uh, twice uh, up the road while I was trying to film what I thought was a pretty concerning scene in a parking lot. And as I was going in there, a cop grabbed me by the, the my backpack and then pushed me uh, up the road. And then another cop pushed me uh, even further. And so I went up the road. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then later after we had turned a corner, 
uh, cops uh, sort of paused uh, to put some distance between them and uh, the protesters who had been going in the direction that they wanted them to go in the whole time. And so I, um, I was sort of walking along the side of the road and filming the police as they um, uh, continued forward after the brief pause. And then the cops started moving in, I think, to reposition themselves to block off certain roads that they didn't want um, uh, protesters to go down. During that time, uh, an officer drove up on his bicycle, told me to get the hell out of here and to move, and then smacked my phone out of my hand, went out of his way to do it uh, as he biked by. And so that was my uh, sort of experience with cops, and that was the first time that happened to me, though other journalists have been um, maced by cops, uh, uh, manhandled by cops, uh, etc., and, and I want to ask about that because there is a video of it happening to you when you're getting shoved and you're clearly wearing a journalist lanyard. Um, yeah. As you say, we've, we've seen an extraordinary increase of violence against journalists um, at protests across the country. I'm wondering where you personally assign the blame. Is it Trump? Is it city leadership? Is it police culture, the unions? Is it all three, four? Those are all the police to me. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I I, I assigned, you know, obviously the individual actions of any of the cops to um, those cops who did it. So I blame the cop who hit me or, you know, who hit my phone out of my hand for for doing it, uh, uh, for doing that. I I blame the cop who pushed me unnecessarily up the road um, for doing that. Um, What gave them the nerve uh, to um, potentially target a a journalist like that? Absolutely. I think it's, 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 Police culture. These cops in Seattle, a lot of them were the same ones. They go out to. They're the same cops who go out to every single protest. And you know, back in June, they were British soldiers with straight faces guarding the. You know, guarding the palace. And now they're hurling back insults just as soon as they're getting them. They have a sarcastic approach. They feel emboldened because they. You know, they feel like the city is behind them and that the city doesn't like the protesters and that they're winning the PR battle. And so they're, you know, and they're tired of it. And so they're just going to be cracking down. And anybody who's out there not doing exactly what they say or who they perceive is not doing exactly what they say is going to get it. You know, I, I get that feeling from um, the police now, uh, whereas maybe that wasn't exactly the case a little bit earlier, though, even as I said that earlier, it was also very bad, <laughs> you know, because that was back when the police were just, you know, turning the, the streets into, uh, at least around 11th and Pine, into war zones, you know, with, with tear gas and, and blast balls and indiscriminately um, uh, spraying people with pepper spray. Some of that still happens. But yeah, so I think that, the, yeah, the, that context uh, maybe is what's leading to, to this. And I think that they have their boosters in Fox News. Uh, they have the support of the president. And, you know, when, when the president says he's maybe he should send troops into Seattle or maybe he needs to defund Seattle. Yeah, I think that the <laughs> that I think that that emboldens the police to uh, to attack you know whoever they think that should be attacked, you know, when they when they do it. You know, not all police uh, you know, obviously do this, but, you know, the. the those who do uh, maybe feel emboldened by that. In terms of the way that the city has responded, do you feel that because there there was a lot of scrutiny, certainly, uh, particularly uh, with the, the police department. We now have an interim police chief, uh, Chief Adrian Diaz, who stepped in after Common Best resigned. Uh, there's been a lot of pressure on Mayor Durkin to resign as well. Uh, how much do you feel the city is responsible for this sort of behavior? How much do you feel that they have tried to rein in this sort of behavior by the police. If you ask them, I'm sure they'll say that they've, they've tried hard. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, Mayor Durkin has stood by her police chiefs as they have overseen um, these, you know, what I, what I consider in some cases pretty brutal attacks uh, on protesters. Uh, and the, you know, the fact that all of this could end if they would just, actually commit to defunding the police, actually commit to investing that money uh, in social services that could, you know, help prevent some of the uh, public safety concerns that they're, uh, you know, worried about, and rightfully so, and understandably so, um, if they could just sort of, you know, uh, in good faith engage uh, 
then perhaps this wouldn't be happening. But they absolutely bear some blame for not doing that. Even the city council or some members on the city council who, you know, tried to kind of shave a little bit off the top of the police budget uh, in the last um, a budget adjustment uh, talks aren't meeting the needs of the protesters. And so the inaction at the city level is absolutely also to blame for this. And the mayor will continue to stand by whoever the police chief is. And, um, and, the, and the city council, I imagine, will continue to, to not fully meet the demands, of, demands of the protesters because they see them as unreasonable. Or sometimes they say that they already have. You talk to Mayor Durkin, for instance, and she'll say, well, I've already invested 100 million or committed to invested a uh, hundred million dollars into the black community. I, we already don't uh, jail protesters on uh, misdemeanors for very long. And the kinds of people who we jail are in there for, you know, violent crimes or assaults. Your, your beef is really with the county. Your beef is really with the state. Um, and she won't resign, <laughs> obviously. But, uh, you know, so, so, so there's some sense that they, she has already uh, participated in good faith. But she hasn't given any details about uh, where the $100 million is going to go. Um, protesters keep getting brutalized in the streets by the police. And, and so, you know, th there's a real disconnect between uh, city leadership and, and the people who are, uh, are protesting daily. Well, it, it seems like, as you say, this is something that's going to go on uh, for the foreseeable future. And it's something that we'll uh, keep an eye on and would love to have you back from time to time to kind of keep us abreast of things. Before I let you go, I just want to ask you about your thoughts on the future of Seattle. We know that the pandemic is changing cities around the country. And I'm just, I'm curious to get a sense of how you see Seattle being changed and, and ultimately not changed by the pandemic. What What is your sense generally? I don't know. Uh, it, it, it all seems to depend upon whether or not um, we get federal funding to uh, shore up the budgets at the city and the state level. Uh, because um, Seattle and Washington State um, have to rely on incredibly aggressive, uh, regressive taxation policies in order to uh, provide necessary services for all of the people who move here and who want to enjoy the, the city and state, they have huge budget holes uh, that are going to result in massive cuts to services that a lot of people rely on. And so without the kind of intervention from the federal government, uh, there's going to be a lot of suffering as a result from this uh, pandemic. And the city and the states right now don't have the tax structure in place in order to prevent that from happening. And even if they did it tomorrow, they're not going to be able to collect the money in time to prevent you know, um, more suffering from happening. Um, with the eviction moratoriums in place, uh, in Seattle and sort of in um, in Washington, I think we'll avoid some bleeding. But the second that those moratoriums lift uh, is the second that you start seeing a massive wave of homelessness, not just here, obviously, in Washington, but across the country. That's going to be bad. Uh, so, you know, if that doesn't, you know, if, if that happens, it'll be a horrible place to live and, and economic inequality is going to continue to widen, you know, as a result of all of this. And a lot more people are going to be suffering than, than have to. However, if the federal government um, steps in and starts getting funding to pay uh, the payrolls of some of these small businesses, uh, all of whom are you know, many of whom are about to kick the bucket in the next few months if they don't get some cash, um, start paying the payrolls of uh, any art institutions. Last survey said 75% of Seattle's art institutions don't have enough money to, to make it through the, the rest of the year. Then we're just not going to have a city anymore. It, you know, it's it's going to be completely gutted. The, the, the downtown, it's hard to say. The last thing I read in the Times about uh, downtown real estate was if you ask one person whether or not it's going to be gutted, they'll say yes. If you ask a, another person, they'll say no. So I'm not sure if, you know, commercial real estate is going to be gutted. But if it does, the city is structured only to extract money in that way, <laughs> you know, from uh, gentrification, basically. So if you don't even have that uh, capitalist form of, uh, of, of money extraction, then you're not going to have any money, you know, for the budget in 2022 or whenever. And so that's also going to lead to more pain uh, and, and suffering. So it, absent uh, massive federal intervention uh, sometime in the next six months of the year, I think the city's really going to be hurting. 
And of course, we know that Seattle has been designated an anarchist community. So it's really going to have to take a, uh, a change of the guard, which we are all fighting tooth and nail for uh, here at Indivisible. You mentioned that arts funding is is really strapped, and of course, arts funding, the arts are the thing that gives a city its culture, and it gives it yeah. its flavor, and it, it gives it a sense of identity, and you know this better than anybody because you cover the arts, and this is a good time as any to bring The Stranger into the conversation here. So, The Stranger provides the best coverage of the city, not just the city, but also the region, uh, in, in my opinion, and things are tight financially. It, for some of the reasons that we've just talked about. Can you expand on that and, and why The Stranger relies on arts funding, relies on small business funding and things like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we had a paper uh, for before the pandemic hit. Uh, and the, the, what allowed us to have a paper was uh, that we sell, you know, ads, uh, ad space. Uh, and the people who bought uh, ads were the people uh, who run small businesses, run restaurants, run opera houses, ballet houses, theaters, uh, music venues. Um, when the pandemic hit and the governor had to close down places where the public could gather, um, that closed down our funding very quickly. And we had to lay off uh, half of our staff on short notice uh, and switch to becoming a digital a publication full time, uh, at least you know until that the city comes back again and people want to start buying ads. Um, until that happens, we're running on fumes uh, and uh, donations uh, and, and, the, and digital uh, ads, which um, aren't as um, profitable as print ads at all. And so if you could go to thestranger.com slash contribute and uh, become a one-time or monthly donor, uh, that uh, keeps me writing about this stuff, uh, keeps me on this podcast, and uh, also uh, feeds and, and pays bills for uh, six other uh, extremely good writers uh, who uh, I have the pleasure of calling my colleagues. Uh, so I, yeah, I would yeah, greatly appreciate that. <laughs> I, I really can't emphasize this enough for listeners, you guys. Uh, this really is, and you know, I have talked on this show about the the death of local journalism and really what it does to a community. And uh, The Stranger is one of those papers that really just keeps Seattle and really Western Washington. And, and really, in many ways, you cover the entire state and you, you keep the state accountable. And it is just so important right now. I just cannot stress it enough. So if, if you have any room in your budget, uh, please open your wallets uh, for The Stranger and the incredible reporting that they do. Rich, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time today, man, and, and, and joining us and giving us a look uh, at what's happening in the city. I, I know that you'll come back uh, in the future. Future and, and kind of keep us updated. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Anytime you want me uh, back on, I'll come on and, um, uh, and chat. All right. In the meantime, uh, keep your windows closed and keep your air filter going and all that good stuff. <laughs> exactly. Until the gills come. No. <laughs> all right, brother. Thank you. Thank you. So as pretty much everybody knows, last week, The Atlantic published a piece detailing numerous instances of Donald Trump denigrating our fallen service members at an event that he skipped in 2018 commemorating the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. He referred to dead soldiers as, quote, losers. And during the same trip, he referred to the more than 1,800 Marines who lost their lives at Belleau Wood as, quote, suckers for getting killed. And all of this, of course, is in addition to the many comments that we know that Trump has made publicly about John McCain and Gold Star families. And so for reaction to this, I have invited on Indivisible member and my dear friend, Chris Franco. He is a former Ranger Qualified Infantry Commander who served a tour of duty in Afghanistan. And he currently serves as Director of Veterans and Military Affairs with the Truman National Security Project. Chris is also third vice chair of the King County Democrats. Chris, how are you, man? I'm doing well, brother, uh, and, and a lot of everything going on. Um, but uh, yeah, I just appreciate you having me on here and um, appreciate you bringing this topic up because it's of, of paramount importance. I couldn't agree more. And yeah, that's why you're here. So let's just start right at the top here. What was your gut reaction when you read about Trump's comments? Man, um, I'll be honest, I was surprisingly taken back. Um, I, 
I felt uh, just a menagerie of of emotions and uh, God, anger, disgust, disbelief, which is crazy. And I, I say disbelief because um, I didn't think anybody could go this low. And uh, I mean, there's not a whole lot that surprises me these days. Uh, but this one did. Uh, I, I, I found myself thinking back to my experiences in Afghanistan, uh, to the, the gold star families that I've, I've stayed in contact with and, uh, and just the, the lineage of, of military service in my own family and so many other, um, families that I've been blessed to know and just shocked. Uh, I mean, this is the commander in chief. This isn't somebody that, that has some, some built-in ill will towards uh, our service members for some reason, but the supreme commander of our, of our servicemen and women. It's, it's just insane. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I, I mean, you put your life on the line for this country. I, I can only imagine that it must be like betrayal at, at, the, at the most basic level. Yeah, that's, that's actually, that's probably the, the cleanest way to, to capture that. Um, hadn't really thought about that, but that's, that's probably that visceral, just gut feeling that uh, I had initially. Yeah, it is, it is betrayal. I mean, we're talking about the, the, the person that is responsible for our, our servicemen and women and our, you know, just to be in that position of commander in chief and, and to have this sentiment for our, our servicemen and women is just insane. Uh, it, it feels like the, the deepest betrayal imaginable. I mean, this isn't some some commander within the, you know, whatever respective branch of the military, but the supreme commander of our United States military. It's, it's insane. And I, I just, I feel for, especially, like, I mean, for me personally, like it's, it pisses me off, um, but I'm still here. But the brothers and sisters that... Um, lost in in Afghanistan their their families are just in a completely different space i i really i feel for them yeah i mean it's just, it's just hard to fathom and then you know for active member troops insofar as you have any contact with them do you sense that there's a demoralizing effect to this absolutely yeah and that like how how gut-wrenching is this for folks that are choosing to spend their lives um, serving, serving our country, putting themselves at risk and, and sacrificing in many ways, being away from uh, family, you know, having missed so many milestones and important memories with their loved ones. And, and yeah, I mean, I mean, hell, even, even his own supporters, the folks that, um, you know, aren't, aren't blindly following at this point, I've got to imagine that's just got to, it's just a gut punch. Of a magnitude, I don't think folks have, have ever felt. You know, you referred to service as as a choice that people have chosen to do this. I only recently learned that you had always wanted to be a soldier. It was the first thing that you you ever wanted to be, and I'm wondering if you can tell us what drove that desire. Yeah, um, man, I'd say quite a few things. I, I'm fortunate to come from a line of, of military veterans. Um, my, my grandfather who immigrated from Mexico, uh, he joined the, the army and, uh, earned a citizenship, founded our family in the Bay area. My dad followed suit in, I think growing up with, within that environment, we, we, we were a patriotic family. We were grateful for the opportunity, you know, our country provided our family to, to live a better life and, uh, and felt obligated and really called, uh, really, to, to serve, to give back, to safeguard our country in its time of need and just do our part, you know, and not, not take this for granted. And I think, um, I mean, fitting that we're, we're having this, this discussion on 9-11, um, you know, I had always wanted to to serve and, and grew up in that environment. I got, you know, pictures of me wearing my dad's old army gear at a, you know, a very young age. Um, but 9-11, I think, sealed the deal. Um, I mean, that that was, that was the, you know, there was, there was no question at that point. Uh, it had always been a desire. And, you know, I just really looked up to and emulated my my father and grandfather and, and other family members that had served and, uh, and just, you know, service members in general and, and wanted to, uh, to follow suit, but 
it, it's been a multitude of factors and, and grateful that I did. Uh, I wouldn't change uh, a service for anything. Uh, and we'll see if my and my four kiddos keep the, the tradition alive, but that's something I'm not going to push on them. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's a multitude of factors and um, just grateful to grow up in that environment and to, to be a part of this community. You know, we've seen Trump insult the military before, as I mentioned in the intro with the Khan family, uh, and then very much so with his remarks about John McCain. And I moved to ask, do you feel like there's anything different about this time with his remarks? Absolutely. Um, I, I, I can't help but think that, you know, in the past, uh, he tries to say he didn't say these things. Uh, he, he, you know, he, he attacks his critics um, and has historically done so consistently, regardless of their service or uh, who they are. And this time is, is very different. Um, I mean, we're talking about, again, the commander in chief making this blanket statement for every single person that has ever worn the uniform is currently wearing it. And, and especially those that have paid the ultimate sacrifice for a nation. And that includes his own supporters. Um, I mean, before it was it was more more targeted. I mean, this time, <laughs> it's everybody. It's it's everybody. It's it's every single service member, uh, past and present, and their and their families. I mean, our you know our military families are part of that service too, and sacrifice in in very many ways. And I can't again help think about our Gold Star families. Um, I mean, this is it's just inexcusable, um, and it's different. It's so different. Uh, and I hope that I hope that folks realize that that this is. This is the commander in chief. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 on a personal, I, I, uh, I'm just blown away that that this 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 man, this uh, this person that is supposed to be in this place of honor uh, and held this great responsibility, uh, cannot fathom the concept of service to anyone other but himself let alone the, the magnitude of one's sacrifice for others and that, that willingness to sacrifice even your own life. And I, I, I can't help but think about one of my friends that uh, unfortunately was killed in Afghanistan, um, Brian Bradshaw, who is a, is a personal hero of mine. Um, I mean, just to give <laughs> you a sneak peek into the, the character of such a man, uh, he, he gave his life. He had watched a family in Afghanistan get hit by an IED in their vehicle and uh, ran to them to provide aid and to, to save them. He didn't know them. Um, and unfortunately, uh, Taliban had a, a secondary device waiting for uh, first responders and, um, you know, I got him and, and the rest of the family. But to not understand, to even be able to conceptualize um, that kind of sacrifice and service towards others is is just insane, especially in in somebody in that in the highest office in our country, and again the commander in chief. Um, it just it's on full display now. It's on full display. You know this this inability to to empathize with uh, folks that are are willing to act out of love for their you know fellow human beings and people to the left and right of them. Um, I mean that's. It's just the void. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's it's absolutely unfathomable. And uh, you know, I will note that all of this seems to be having an effect. Uh, a poll from the Military Times showed that 50% of active duty military have an unfavorable view of Trump with 42% strongly disappro- uh, disapproving. They also show that they support Joe Biden by four percentage points. And I should mention that I believe they went two to one for Trump in 2016. Um, the support for Joe Biden, does this surprise you at all? Honestly, it does. Um, I'll, I'll be honest. It's it's super encouraging. It's surprising. Uh, and I say that because uh, an overwhelming majority of our military forces is made up of uh, our enlisted soldiers who tend to be um, more supportive of, of Trump and the administration. Uh, and to see this fundamental shift uh, is encouraging. It, it is very encouraging to see our our servicemen and women uh, waking up to this reality that we have someone in office that does not care for them, their families, um, and that the support is is starting to uh, coalesce behind uh, Biden and Harris and, and this hope for um, 
a better future and to, and to move beyond this madness. Um, it's encouraging to see that support for this administration being chipped away. Um, and I, I hope it continues. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think we all do. And, I, you know, something else that I have noted is that military leadership seems to be widely condemning Trump at this point. Uh, most notably, uh, former Defense Secretary James Mattis, um, also General John Allen. He was the former commander of uh, American forces in Afghanistan. Do you think that is swaying opinion among rank and file military? Yes and no. Um I think, and why I say yes is that I think to an extent, but from a more of an accountability perspective, yeah, you know, when our when our military leaders at the top are uh, are being more vocal, I think it's really encouraging for the folks that have had those sentiments and, and haven't been able to vocalize them. I mean, hatched everything, just the culture within the military. Um, but no, in in the respect, still, like from an ideological perspective. Um, it's just it's likely just pushing some to be more silent at a fear of, of, of being held accountable for um, for doing or saying things that would um, well that they shouldn't be saying and doing uh, while in uniform. And I, I, that said, though, I, I do think folks like James Mattis, um, who have a great deal of respect within the military and, and other uh, prominent leaders that have uh, earned their respect from uh, veterans and, and service members, are able to help chip away at the folks in the um, in the middle and and that aren't you know diehard and, and committed to uh, one one side or the other, if you will. Um, I do hope that they continue to speak out. I mean, they need to. We have to. We have. I mean, if there was ever a time for our military leaders, past and present, to to take a stand, it's now. Um, and, and I hope to see more folks step forward into that space because it's important. It's important to show folks that they're not alone. It's important to, to take a moral stand. Uh, and um, we'll see if it continues. I, I do hope to see that continue as we get closer to the election because uh, this, is, this is it. And you're kind of leading into my next question, which is a very, very difficult one. And it's a speculative question, but in a very practical sense, should we be in any way reassured that Trump does not seem to have the full backing of the military and especially of military leadership right now? Yes. Um, honestly, it gives me a great deal of peace, um, though I don't want to take that for granted. Um, our, our military is, is a, in many respects, a, a last line of defense um, against a, an authoritarian or fascist regime rising to power in the United States of America. And, um, appreciate the question. Definitely uh, one to, <laughs> uh, to to think through. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's encouraging and should be encouraging to Americans everywhere that our military is not in lockstep behind this administration. Um, and that as we get closer to the election and our institutions are tested in a way they have not been tested in God knows how long, uh, if ever, in this way, that we need desperately our military to uphold the, the Constitution like we all swore an oath to do uh, in, our, in our time of need and how important that is. And, and the fact that we have um, our military leaders and a majority of the military service members that don't support what's going on right now uh, should be encouraging to Americans everywhere that, you know, this this last line of defense, if you will, is still intact. Uh, and hopefully that will continue to get stronger over time because we we need we need that assurance uh, and we need that to, to be maintained as we get closer. Uh, and I don't say this lightly, but, but, you know, between November and January, it'll it'll be arguably uh, among the, the most challenging months in our nation's uh, history, at least in recent history. And we need our institutions and leaders to stand tall uh, everywhere, not just the military, but our, our military especially, um, it, should we we get into a place of, of greater civil unrest and division and um, <laughs> leaders and institutions having to make incredibly difficult decisions. It's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night, and I know I'm not uh, alone in that. Before I let you go, I will ask you, what your take is on how Biden, Joe Biden, has been responding to all of this, uh, Trump's remarks. You know, we, we know that Biden's son, Beau, served in Afghanistan. H how do you feel about Biden's response to all this? 
you know, I'm encouraged by the way he's responding. I, I appreciate the candor in, in calling out these remarks for what they are. They are disgusting. Um, and I appreciate him sharing a, a bit of his heart with us. Uh, you know, and, I, and it's no no secret, you know, Biden was not my first my first choice uh, for a nominee, but I, I'm, I'm growing to respect and appreciate him a heck of a lot more in, in light of these more recent months in particular. And I mean, the man knows what service and sacrifice look like with, with Bo uh, serving and, you know, just being able to share with us the, the pain and losing uh, a son and, and other family members and his commitment to our, our servicemen and women in a multitude of ways, um, I think just speaks to the, the vast difference in, in their character, um, Trump and Biden. And I, I do hope that he continues to uh, to call us out for what it is and, and to continue to speak from the heart and to continue to to showcase the fact that he can empathize with, you know, all Americans, uh, but in this case, especially our, our military um, service members and our veterans and, and our Gold Star families in particular. Um, I hope he keeps at it. Uh, this is this is the time to speak up and, and to really uh, take a moral stand for our country and for the brave men and women, um, not just in the military, but everywhere that are willing to to fight the good fight and um, potentially sacrifice everything so that we can continue this this great experiment and hopefully one day realize uh, true justice and make good on our, our declarations and, you know, live our full potential. So I, I, I feel strongly about folks rallying behind Biden and, and giving our, our country an opportunity to restore our nation and unite our nation and, and get back to work, the real work. Well, we're less than eight weeks to the election, and you know that you're talking to a lot of activists right now. You yourself are one. Uh, I think those are great words to close on. Uh, Chris Franco, thanks, man, for, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it, brother. And let's do this. We got eight weeks, and uh, we can put this dark chapter behind us and, uh, and forge a brighter future together. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks again to Chris Franco and Rich Smith. Thanks also this week to Catherine Fysears. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.